0: Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, I want to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article which, although written in 2014, I only just recently came across. To be certain, there are daily numerous articles, comments, and statements which directly or indirectly demonstrate world and life views that are grossly in error when compared to biblical worldviews. Yes, I said in error. In this episode, I will endeavor to explain why such a broad statement is possible, and secondly, why and how in particular this specific article is a classic example of a faulty worldview. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit Your Word would be a sharp, two-edged sword by which through Your grace and power we might proclaim Your truth revealed from eternity to a lost and dying world. We give thanks, glory, and honor to You that this was which was first and foremost You were pleased to deliver, we who were formerly dead, from death to life eternal. We give thanks through faith, knowing that your word still remains true to give life eternal to those whom you call to yourself in your time. In Jesus' name, Amen. As is my habit, I spend quite a bit of time reading, studying, and meditating upon God's word. I also spend a large amount of time researching in order both to keep myself growing in the knowledge of God's Word, as well as keeping current in the world in which we are pilgrims. In this case, as I did so, although I was not looking for this article, I nevertheless stumbled across it. The article in question appeared in 2014 on a website entitled, Alternate. The specific article was entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Mega-Churches. Now, to be sure, I have seen a fair share of statements, articles, and books which, frankly, were not worth the paper that they were printed on. Some better, some worse. But sadly this article virtually leaped out as a highlight and pinnacle collection of poorly thought out and gravely mistaken ideas masquerading as supposed philosophical enlightenment and dialogue. As I continued reading, the various errors, mischaracterizations, logical fallacies, misconceptions, Theological errors and and philosophical assumptions compounded themselves almost into absurdity. Had this been one man's isolated opinion? Fine. But unfortunately, this article represents an apparent ever-growing number of people who live with an amazing degree of theological and philosophical ignorance. Consequently, God's Word reminds us, as discerning believers, God is not pleased for us to sit around and simply say nothing while the world corrupts, twists, and delivers tortured, self-serving interpretations of who God is or what His Word says in context. Instead, we are given clear marching instructions according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says, quote, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, unquote. Also, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, quote, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Unquote. Finally, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Quote, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man." This being said, let us take a discerned look at this article using correct biblical hermeneutical principles of exegesis. First of all it is worthwhile to examine the source. What is Alternet? A quick research of Alternet reveals that Alternet is a progressive activist news source launched in 1998. Alternet claims a readership of between 1.3 to 5.9 million visitors per month. Its stated mission is to, quote, inspire citizen action and advocacy to the environment, human rights, and civil liberties, social justice, media, and health care issues, unquote. The article itself is apparently excerpted from a book by the same author entitled, quote, Why am I an atheist who believes in God? how to give love, create beauty, and find peace." Unquote. With this introduction being given, one can see that with one to six million people's eternal salvation and destiny at stake, why it is critical was such error to correct the record. As such, let's turn our attention to the article itself and compare what is portrayed within to the entire Word of God, the Bible, in context, to see what we have. Let's begin with the title of the article itself, quote, Why Jesus wouldn't cut it as a pastor in today's evangelical megachurches, unquote. Now to determine whether this assertion is biblically correct or not, let's ask a question. Who is Jesus? Better yet, let's let Jesus restate the question as he did in Matthew chapter 16 verse 15. Quote, Whom say ye that I am? Unquote. So as not to repeat myself, I have already exhaustively addressed the question and answer to this in a three-part episode entitled, Whom do you say I am? For the sake of brevity, we can simplify the issue by simply asking, is Jesus merely a mortal man, a philosopher, or is Jesus God? If Jesus is simply a mortal man or a philosopher, then pondering whether Jesus would or could, quote-unquote, cut it in any church, mega or otherwise, is no more significant than pondering whether Joe the shoeshine man John Smith, or any other human can or would, quote-unquote, cut it in any church. It is really nothing more than a roll of the dice, personality, luck, the quote-unquote church in question, the message, and a thousand and one marketing philosophies which may or may not work depending on circumstances. But, if Jesus is God, then the Bible's propositional revelation is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God does not change. God does not lie. God knows the end from the beginning and He is also personally present now in time and space. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfect in all of His attributes. Once we accept this reality of God's revelation of His nature and character, then we may apply this fact to the above question. If we do so, then we have to reevaluate the author's assessment to conclude that if there is a disconnect between those calling themselves a quote church unquote, mega or otherwise, and the Jesus of the Bible, then we have an accompanying revelation given that the problem lies within those calling themselves quote-unquote Christian and or a quote-church unquote and not with Jesus or God's Word. Once again, the problem is caused by the starting point. If we, or any other group, start with the assumption that it is man defining God and His Word, then we can and will have error due to sin. Thus, we have to abandon our preconceptions, bias, assumptions, and humanistic, philosophic worldviews and instead allow God and His Word to form and guide our world and our life views. This is especially true if we wish to know what God's Word says rather than what we say about God's Word. So to be honest, according to Scripture, the correct title should be quote, Why many groups calling themselves a church cannot cut it today according to Jesus as being His church. Unquote. For a more in-depth discussion of who and what is, or is not, a true church according to God's Word, I would direct the listener to the three-part episode entitled, Questions About the Church. In short, ever since Genesis 3, it is mankind exclusively who bears the burden of correctly knowing and understanding who God is, much less a correct, discerned understanding about anything else in God's creation. Because of sin, man is always continuing the process of what Satan began in the garden. Man is always using his own sinful, secular, humanistic, fallen, self-serving thoughts, desires, and whims, and attempting to force them upwards to God and pretend that they are God's ideas. Or, man is attempting to drag God down to the fallen level where man resides, Given this fact, it is no surprise that man would attempt to form his own fallen version of Christ's church and either pretend that Jesus approves of it, or man would kick Jesus out from said church under the delusion that Jesus is somehow out of touch with those who have surpassed Jesus in intellect, spirituality, and goodness. In the end, Jesus himself predicted in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, quote, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Unquote. Or again in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, Quote, for false christs and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce if it were possible even the elect the only solution to potentially falling prey to such deception would be to read know and properly discern god's word in context so that in turn we might be converted once we have been born from above, we have a living relationship with Jesus. We also have the gift of his indwelling spirit, which imparts discernment to know truth from error. It is important to know that error is the result of believing a lie. Satan is ultimately the father of lies. Unlike the character depiction of Satan as some ugly readily recognizable figure, Satan is in fact revealed to be a very beautiful creation who, because of his allure, often is able to subtly tempt the unwary by virtue of his attraction. Thus, the lesson is that not all that glitters is gold. Probably the best way to demonstrate the utter folly of what this author proposes and to put things into correct context is to look at revelation in chapter 1 verse 11 jesus calls himself quote the alpha and the omega the first and the last unquote notice jesus is not generational he is not of the moment here and gone he is not some passing fancy of culture and environment who bends to the whim of consensus, percentage, and opinion. Instead, Jesus is eternal from beginning to end throughout eternity. This same Jesus, who is God, then proceeds to tell John, the writer of Revelation, to dictate a letter to the seven churches I recommend listeners to read verses 1 through 20. In each verse, Jesus authoritatively clarifies exactly who he is and what the relationship is for his churches to him. In verse 14, we are told his hairs are like white wool, white as snow, and his eyes are as a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet are as brass and his voice is the sound of many waters. Verse 16, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance is as the sun. In verse 17, we find the ultimate unavoidable reaction of all who look upon God in the fullness of his nature and glory. Quote, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, unquote. In verse 18, Jesus sets the record straight. What do we find? Some groveling weakling in a wheelchair, crying, pleading for someone, anyone to please allow him to be a pastor in their church? No, and a thousand times no. Verse 18, quote, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. In chapters 2 to 4, Jesus proceeds to evaluate each of the seven churches. In some cases, Jesus is pleased, in others, Jesus is displeased and rebukes his church. But in every case, it is Jesus who is the one evaluating his church and not the church who is evaluating Jesus. What we learn from all of this is that it is not a question of Jesus cutting it or not in any church or anywhere else. What we learn is that rightly understood It is a question of any person or any group of persons who would call themselves a church, truly knowing, loving, worshipping, and following Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as revealed in the Bible, in context, as opposed to doing what is right in their own eyes and deceiving themselves. For those who rebelliously, sinfully, and arrogantly attempt to do so, Jesus has cut it in the sense that because that person or persons have abandoned Jesus, he has cut them off. This so far is just the title. The author then goes on in the body of this article to continue to compound his various humanistic errors. Because this article is so loaded and replete with inaccuracies, it will be necessary to take bit by bit to address these errors. In the first five sentences, the author says the following, quote, Jesus never could have been the pastor of a contemporary evangelical church nor a conservative Roman Catholic bishop. Evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics thrive on drawing distinctions between their, quote, truth, unquote, and other people's failings. Jesus by contrast set off an empathy time bomb that obliterates difference. Jesus' empathy bomb explodes every time a former evangelical puts love ahead of what the quote Bible says unquote. It goes off every time Pope Francis puts inclusion ahead of dogma. It goes off every time a gay couple are welcomed into a church. Jesus's time bomb explodes whenever atheists follow Jesus better than most Christians." So here, the author has introduced three topics, truth, failings, and drawing distinctions. In order to uncover the author's biases, it is necessary to parse the above paragraph. Notice, for example, that the author seems to disdainfully use the phrase, quote, their truth, unquote. What this essentially implies is that truth is relative. It is subjective. There is no one truth. There is no one reality. But here we have to stop and ask whether this assertion is correct or not. Now, time prohibits a full-blown discussion to prove or disprove the existence or non-existence of some universal central truth. For the sake of brevity, let's boil it down to three options. 1. There is no universal, absolute, immutable truth anywhere, period. Everything is an illusion, a trick, or a lie. 2. 2. Truth is relative. Everyone can adopt anything, everything, or nothing as each person sees right in their own eyes and can correctly call it truth. Truth is also a product of time, environment, culture, opinion, consensus, and percentage. As such, truth is a mutable concept like clay that can be molded and changed at will moment to moment. Three, truth is a fixed reality based and established by some immutable source of ultimate authority which dictates truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time. Now, if we apply the above three possibilities to the author's Assertion What would we logically find? First up, let's discuss truth. Well, if there is no absolute truth anywhere, period, then it would be logically impossible and intellectually dishonest to talk about quote, their truth unquote, or anyone else's truth, since there is no such thing as truth in existence to talk about. If truth is completely arbitrary and subjective to every person and there is no absolute truth, then it is intellectually dishonest and disingenuous to pretend as though that there is any truth that is qualitatively better than another. Since they are all subjective and only true for that moment for that individual, then there is no basis or foundation that any of us have to comment good or bad on what another person holds to be true. So, under this premise, the author would be limited to saying that quote, they, unquote, regardless of who quote, they unquote, are, have a truth which is a valid truth for quote, them, unquote. The author or anyone else can also equally have one or a million other truths which are equally valid for each of them. Each person's truth is valid. No one's truth is invalid. It is all truth, subjectively valid for each person. Finally, if there is an established, immutable source of ultimate authority which dictates truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time, then there is no basis whereby we can correctly say there is, quote, their truth, unquote, as opposed to some, quote, other truth, unquote. There is only one truth, and then there are those who know, acknowledge, accept, and live according to that truth correctly. And there are those who either don't know or refuse to accept that truth. Our personal feelings, emotions, opinions about that truth, whether they be individual or via 100% agreement, consensus, or percentage to the contrary, Do not change that truth. In light of this, when we talk about truth, it is important to recognize that the author has clearly pitted two divergent worldview ideas against one another. In the first, the author is basically saying that the truth, that reality are both something which are defined unilaterally, starting and ending with man as the sole arbiter and authority of meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time. Contrasting this, the author variously attempts to dismiss God and God's word, the Bible, as being the ultimate authority of meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time. Clearly, the issue then is which one of these two is correct. The interesting dilemma for the author is that while the author would like to dismiss certain things which God's word says as being myth, fable, inaccuracy, mistranslation, etc., the author at the same time attempts to use the same Bible which he supposes has all these problems to prove his case. In essence, like is so often the case with the world, the world and those of the world take the God of the Bible whom they deny and the Bible which they disdain for so many of its revelations which run contrary to their worldview and only selectively use those portions of the Bible in part or in whole as they cut out of context buffet argument style to prove their point. In terms of solving the problem and knowing which of the two are correct, I would submit the following. If we assume that man is the ultimate authority for truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe throughout all time, then what do we honestly see as we look at the history of man? Well, whether we assume evolution or a creative act, we see throughout time or as in the case of creation from Genesis 3 forward, we see man doing incredibly terrible things to his fellow man. We see war, hatred, violence, envy, strife, and a thousand and one other things that would, we would label as bad, evil, or inhumane. We see a thousand and one philosophical systems to explain the meaning of life. After either several million or six thousand years of trying, man cannot agree conclusively. What this conclusively demonstrates is that if man ever was the ultimate authority for truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time, then there has never been a time, except perhaps prior to Genesis 3, when any man was able to demonstrate and execute these abilities 100%, 100% of the time. Instead, we have to say that every man is limited by some inherent ability to do so. On the other hand, we have God and his propositional progressive revelation of himself as well as his relationship to man and his creation given in his word, the Bible. Here, God declares that it is He who is the ultimate authority in charge of truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time. We have an explanation, revelation, and prediction of the very situation and limitations of man and his nature post-Genesis 3. We still don't have universal agreement but the disagreement is given explanation and is predicted as being sin and rebellion. As it turns out, these revelations of man and his nature according to Romans 3 and the rest of God's word match precisely what we see and experience every day. Consequently, we see that as we honestly and sincerely compare the two proclamations That while man may have really sincere intentions and really profound feelings, man is still suffering under the very problems inherent to man, given his nature as predicted and described in the Bible. The only way to potentially escape man's inherent inability would be for man to seek an outside source which is not affected by sin and error in order to have revelation of what is in fact truth and reality. I would further submit that the only reliable source which was, is, and ever will be free of sin and error is God and His Word, the Bible without God and His Word being the ultimate source of truth, meaning morals, beauty, significance, and reality throughout all the universe, throughout all time, then ultimately all things fall into silence, and there is no truth. In contrast to this, we have Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verse 6, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unquote. Or we have John chapter seventeen, verse seventeen, where Jesus prays for his followers, saying, quote, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, unquote. Second, let's discuss quote, failings, unquote. We have the loaded statement, quote, other people's failings, unquote, used by the author. The author apparently wants to contrast these, quote, failings, unquote, against the, quote, their truth, unquote. Of course, we would have to first establish what the quote, truth, unquote, is before we could hope to proceed and be in the position to correctly and confidently know what in reality can be defined as a, quote, failing, unquote. Now, going back to our three theories of truth, if there is no universal, absolute, immutable truth anywhere, period, then logic would axiomatically dictate that there can be no failing, There can only be a failing of truth where there is, in fact, a truth, or there is at least a perceived truth. Hence, for there to be a failing, there is a truth either in perception or reality. If truth is merely a perception, which is totally subjective, relative, and personal, then the perception of failure is only possible if and when one person compares their perceived truth to another person's perceived truth. The problem is that under this premise we have to remind ourselves that there is no ultimate truth or reality. There is only perception. If there is no reality, no ultimate truth, and all that is is every person's perception which is equally true, then there is no objective basis for any man, including this author, to be upset about any distinctions. Any supposed distinctions, differences, or disagreements would be moot and meaningless because there is no ultimate authority with which anyone can rely on to make such complaints. It is only when we make the assumption that there is is an ultimate truth in reality that we are then in a position to make any comment. Consequently we must place the concept of quote failings unquote, or quote failure unquote, into the framework of our two worldviews to see what we have. In the first we have man who is at the center and measure of all things. If man is the ultimate authority, then we would expect to see a universal acceptance, definition, and understanding of what is or what is not a failing throughout history. Instead, like truth and reality, history demonstrate that man's definition of failure is no more universal or consistent than are his views on truth and reality. They are in constant flux according to culture, time, percentage, and opinion. This is consistent, again, with what the Bible proclaims and predicts as a logical outcome of sin and rebellion. In the second, we have God's Word, which defines, proclaims, and states what are and are not fair versus success. They are stated to be in opposition and polarization to much of what Satan, the world, sin, and sinful man define as being success and failure. The differences and the fact that there is polarization are proclaimed, predicted, and explained according to the Bible, whereas there is no uniform explanation given or possible by man. Further, the two are irreconcilable unless one is willing to abandon one in order to embrace the other. In the end, in order to conclusively correctly know what is or what is not a failing quote, one would have to abandon any philosophical system which contains inherent flaws. In the case of mankind, we have already seen that from a purely historical basis that mankind constantly has an inherent propensity to fail at various things for various reasons. The unavoidable conclusion is that we have no historical track record as human beings which, with which we can draw the conclusion that the next decision, conclusion, or opinion that we come to will not likewise be a failure. But God's propositional revelation is that He is eternally perfect in all of His attributes. His knowledge and understanding are likewise perfect. Thus, we can, should, and do look at what God declares in His Word and from there we can say in context to the whole what is and what is not a failure or a success our opinions, emotions, and anything else that we bring to the table do not change truth, reality, or the failures and success which flow from surrendering to or rebelling against said truth and reality. As we sincerely look at the central message of God's Word regarding success and failure, what we discover is that the greatest success is when, by God's grace, He is pleased to draw us to a saving knowledge and relationship to Himself through faith via the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The greatest failure is when any person rejects God's free gift and remains in rebellion to God and His Word. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part two of this episode as we continue. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to email me at pastor-yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Oh, that He has found me Christ the rock Is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him I will trust in Him